Okay, today we want to begin with an announcement. It's really a double announcement, and both parts of this announcement are joyous. Kathy McClory, who has been a faithful co-laborer together with us in Tetelestai for many decades and for every day throughout this pandemic, recently had to say goodbye to her beloved mother. But even now, I know Kathy rejoices that she has departed from this life and is in the presence of her Lord, her Redeemer, with perfect health and fullness of joy. And the second part of that announcement, and I don't want to preempt this announcement too much, but I'd like to say that as one beautiful life goes to brighten heaven, another beautiful soul comes into this world to brighten this earth. And I speak of Marina Kate Cecilia, who has become the first or the latest, let's say, member of Tetelestai Phalanx. And so I congratulate Kathy and Jim, who's with us today, and Michael and Charity and their parents and the whole family for this new addition. One beautiful life departs to brighten heaven. Another beautiful life comes in to brighten life on earth and life in Tetelestai Phalanx. And we're very grateful. So today we're going to continue with that spirit of joy, and that's exactly what every message is. Every message, in my view, from the Word of God and from the teaching of the Word, even if it's strongly exhortational, sometimes rebuking, sometimes warning, sometimes correcting, sometimes admonishing, other times uplifting, restoring, encouraging, imparting great incentive. Every message is the communication of the joy of Jesus Christ to our hearts. I've spoken these things that my joy would be in you, he said, and that your joy would be complete as a result of that. Hebrews is all about completion, and included in, that, included in that completion is the completion of your joy. We who teach are merely helpers of your joy. We're not dominators of your faith, but we are helpers of your joy. So put 2 Corinthians one twenty four together with John 15.11 and Nehemiah 8.10, and you've got something about the joy that will be transferred to our souls today. And Father, we thank you today for this opportunity. Once again, we entrust our spirit to you. We give you our heart. Teach us, Father, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This is increment 82 of Hebrews 2020 at the end of what we dubbed the year of today, and our very next verse after this one, after 312 is 313, which has to do with today, while it's called today, encourage one another every day. And many of you have actually done that this past year, encouraged others day by day. Now, today we're going to begin with a consideration of four levels of individual consciousness. Now, I don't think this is getting fancy or psychological because all of these can be identified in the scriptures. Four levels of human consciousness. And there is a fifth identifiable level, which we want to touch on today, in, and I think it's going to be in anticipation of a future series. If not taught by me, someone will bring it because it's from, it'll be from the spirit of truth. There are four levels of individual consciousness and a fifth one that is collective. 
And so the fifth level has to be distinguished from the top, from the first four, because it is collective. It's called interpersonal. It's also called intersubjective in the sense that it is a coalition of subjects that are thinking, intending, acting. And so you're starting to get hints already where we're going. There are four levels of individual human consciousness and a fifth, which is collective. The first level is that of experience and of audio, visual, tactical sensation. The Exodus generation that we've just finished studying and are not done yet studying, they were stuck on the level of experience, which is why they longed for the leeks and garlic and free fish and the flesh pots back in Egypt. Back there, they didn't really have to think, and they were really not allowed to question their overlords. Sounds like some newscasters. And in the desert, they wanted gods that they could see and touch. And so they chided Aaron into making a golden calf around which they danced and had their sensual orgies. The second level of consciousness is that of wonder leading to inquiry and inquiry to insight or understanding. So as the first is a level of experience, sensate experience we might say, the second level is that of understanding. On that level, the questions related to quidsit are asked. The Latin quidsit simply means what is it? The question is asked and answers are discovered. On this second level, the individual leaves the world of immediacy. The world of immediacy is the world around him that relates only to me, to mine, to I, as George Harrison's song was entitled, I, me, me, mine. That's a world of immediacy, the world that only relates to me. And on the second level of consciousness, and this should happen from infancy to toddlerhood or childhood, the infant moves into a world mediated by meaning where we begin to ask, what's that? What is it? And sometimes why? And how does that relate to this? How does that out there apart from me relate to this out there apart from me? How does this relate to that? Not just how does this relate to me? In the world mediated by meaning, everything isn't all about me. I, me, me, mine. Now the third level of consciousness is the level of reflection that leads to judgments. As inquiry leads to insights, reflection leads to judgments or conclusions. On that level, the third level of consciousness, we ask the question in the Latin, ansit, A-N-S-I-T. Is that really true? Is the insight that we receive really true, or is it just an oversight of insight? Is it a flight from insight? Is it a false insight? Is it an angel of light? And so we ask, are the answers to our what is it true and real? On the third level, therefore, we gather evidence to the point where we can say with relative certitude about a thing, yes, that's true. Or, no, that was mistaken, and I can prove it by such and such evidence. The French saying, le jugement est la fruit de la réflexion is a good motto for this level. It means judgment is the result of reflection or the fruit of reflection. And by judgment, we mean a conclusion. The scripture says that God has not given us the spirit of fear, of intimidation, of temerity or timidity, but the spirit of love and power and sound judgment, the ability to make sound judgments. We do so on the third level of human consciousness called judgment leading or reflection leading to judgment. Now, as those who revere God 
and his word, we base our reflection on the scriptures. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, the indispensable help of the Holy Spirit, we come to sound judgments and conclusions about truth and reality. The ultimate judgment that we come to, it's a judgment that I have come to, is that reality itself and truth itself is an incarnate reality, not just a linguistic reality. It's an incarnate reality, a personal reality. His name is Jesus. The fourth level of consciousness is that of deliberation and decision leading to action or to specific acts. The fourth level of consciousness is supremely important. Now, here's the question. Why are these levels of consciousness important in our current study? Why in Hebrews 2020? They are important because our current study is on the heart and the conscience, which are vital themes in Hebrews. And the conscience happens to be located on the fourth level of consciousness. A true heart, as Hebrews 10.22 calls it, strengthened and established by grace, as Hebrews 13.9 mentions, and a purified conscience, in Hebrews 9.14, a purified conscience by the atoning blood of Christ and a true heart are necessary qualifications for drawing near to God to worship and serve him effectively in the spirit and in truth. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is always looking for such worshipers. He is now. He's looking for worshipers. There are already angelic worshipers, worshiping from a fifth level of angelic consciousness, saying, holy, 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 Lord God of the armies. God seeks human worshipers who will worship him on the fourth and fifth level of the human consciousness, and we'll be explaining that a little more. A true heart, strengthened and established by grace, and governed by grace, and a purified conscience in Hebrews 9.14, purified by the atoning blood of Christ, these are both necessary qualifications for true service and worship of God. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as I said, is always looking for such worshipers in spirit and in the truth that is incarnate in Jesus, his son, and the truth that is also widely embodied in his corporate body. A true heart, and again, that's Hebrews 10, 22, is made true by the influx of truth. God's word is truth. It's truth about the person of Jesus Christ. A true heart includes a purified conscious, conscience. The conscience is purified by the blood of Christ. The heart is made true by the influx of truth. Brave hearts are first true hearts. There are no brave or courageous hearts in this world that aren't first true hearts. True hearts, in which there are clear consciences, are people through whom God redeems history. Listen carefully. True hearts, in which there are clear consciences, are people through whom God redeems history out of the morass created by those of seared conscience and evil hearts of unbelief. 
Evil hearts of unbelief, Hebrews 3.12. Seared conscience under demonic action that causes hearts to wander, 1 Timothy 4.1 and 2. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, speaks expressly about those who depart from the faith and give heed to seducing spirits and wandering vagabond demons and who become seared in their conscience. We should always be aware of and perhaps even diligently study passages like 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 and following and 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 13 and really following into 17 giving an idea of what megatrends of history lead to destruction. And that's where we are today. Doctrines of demons and seared consciences. When you sear meat, what do you do? You kind of harden the outer barrier on the meat, the outer layer. It becomes seared. Seared consciences are cauterized and it is only possible to hold on to an evil ideology and a false creed or creeds if the conscience is seared. Only a seared conscience can hold on to a false ideology, a godless ideology. And they have their own creeds now. We believe da-da-da. They don't believe the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Christian Creed. They believe in a bunch of new things and use, it, use their creeds to condemn people. The conscience is purified, on the other hand, by divine action. The conscience is seared by the help of demonic action and negative volition to the truth. But the purified conscience is purified by divine action through the blood of Christ in which the person receives into the fourth level of their consciousness the forgiveness that was wrought in the cross. That which is demonically inflicted can always be divinely reversed and healed. And I say that thinking of Mary of Magdala, who was the first witness to see Jesus raised from the dead and who had also had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. That which is demonically inflicted can be divinely reversed and healed. In fact, all that has ever been demonically inflicted will be reversed and healed because of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. On the second level of consciousness in my own life, I ask, is Jesus Christ's significance saving and universal? I answered to that question, yes, and then I reflected on it. And the more I reflected, the more the yes became case-hardened and assured, the more that reality became a certitude. And that's an example of what happens on levels of consciousness. Now, there's another way that the conscience can be evilly affected and called evil. And it's when the conscience retains the evil called guilt. Now, here's what I mean. It's when the piercing pain of guilt and remorse for sins. And we, when we sin, we should have the piercing pain of guilt and remorse for a second until we go to the cross, as it were, where it's assuaged and forgiven. So when the conscience is evilly affected by guilt, it's when the piercing pain of guilt and remorse for sins is not assuaged or mitigated by the heart's reception and experience of divine forgiveness. And therefore the heart, ridden by the evil of unrelieved guilt, does not and cannot draw near to God. That's why it says draw near to God with a purified conscience. The heart that is riddled by the evil of unrelieved guilt does not and cannot draw near to God. So one of our reasons I'm teaching Hebrews is so that you can have your conscience purified 
to draw near to the living God and to have a life of true transformation and liberation, which we will call Uranopolis down the road, I'm anticipating. The heart ridden by guilt can resort to the performance of rituals or to seemingly philanthropic actions to mitigate, mitigate that guilt. These actions may be applauded by the undiscerning, but God knows the heart. We may say, oh, look at that wonderful act that that person performed. He just suddenly gave a Cadillac to somebody who was admiring it in the showcase. And you say, well, that's a wonderful philanthropic action. And it very well may be, but it also may be the action of someone who's riddled with guilt and does exorbitant kinds of things like that to assuage and mitigate their guilt. It has nothing to do with a God-sponsored action. So these actions may be applauded by the undiscerning, but God knows the heart in 1 Samuel 16, 7 through 9. True service to the living God is free from dead works and is never motivated by guilt or by fear. True service to the living God occurs as a labor of love in Hebrews 6, 9 to 10 from a conscience that is purged from dead works in Hebrews 9.14. Now, all of this and more comes to play in Hebrews, so you can see its practical import. And it's important to note that a fifth level of consciousness exists in you and in me. That level is called intersubjective. Don't trip over a new word. Intersubjective simply means a coalition of acting, intending, and thinking subjects. People who have a similar mindset, though not a uniform mindset. We're not talking about Marxist intersubjectivity, which is forced and phony. We're talking about a true Christian intersubjectivity, where we have one kind of mindset, which is an orientation toward obedience to God. And it's grace. It's always by grace. So, don't trip over intersubjective or intersubjectivity. The level, the fifth level is intersubjective, and I call it a coalition of thinking, intending, and acting subjects. Subjects, which are persons. So it's interpersonal. It is interpersonal, and in that sense, it is a collective consciousness. Again, when you deal with things like collective unconscious, you think of Carl Jung and his his philosophy and his psychology, which is flawed. But we also think of collective consciousness as it's used by phony Marxist people. So I'm not talking about collective consciousness in the forced and phony Marxist sense, but in a true and liberated Christian sense. And we'll be dealing with this down the road. A lot of this is anticipating the possibility of a future series called Uranopolis, which is thinking and intending and acting in a heavenly citizenship while we're still in a colony, as it were, of heaven on earth. For now, it's important to realize two things, two things. One, the conscience, such an important subject in Hebrews, is on the fourth level of consciousness. And second, the gift of God's love, God's gift of his own love, comes initially into the fourth level of consciousness. That's where it's poured out in the heart, in Romans 5.5. 5. Now, because of much of what I'm saying and much of what I know about the levels of consciousness derives from Bernard Lonergan and Robert M. Duran, who thankfully is still with us, and I'm anticipating his third volume in the Trinity in History to come about the redemption of history. Bernard Lonergan and Robert M. Duran, because much of what I'm saying here derives from my own understanding of their teachings, I'd like first to quote a passage from Lonergan on the four levels of consciousness, and then quote a passage from Duran about the fifth level of consciousness. First, Lonergan, specifically regarding the conscience, 
which we've seen in the Greek as sunedesis, S-U-N, we've seen this before, S-U-N-E-I-D, long E-S-I-S, sunedesis, sunedesis. That's conscience. So this has to do with the conscience, and because it does, I want to quote Lonergan on four levels of consciousness and the fact that the conscience, sunadesis, used in five times in Hebrews, is found on the fourth level of consciousness. Here it is. Here's the quote, and it comes from an article called Faith and Beliefs in volume 17 of the Lonergan Collection, page 40. Quote, I have distinguished different levels of consciousness, and now I must add that the gift of God's love is on the topmost level. It is not the consciousness that accompanies acts of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. It is not the consciousness that accompanies acts of inquiry, insight, formulation, speaking. It is not the consciousness that accompanies acts of reflecting, marshalling and weighing the evidence, making judgments of fact or possibility. It is the consciousness that also is conscience. There's where the love of God is poured out. It is the consciousness that also is conscience. That's, again, I'm quoting Lonergan. I continue the quote. That deliberates, evaluates, decides, controls, acts, but is this conscious but it is this consciousness as brought to fulfillment i thought that was striking but it is this consciousness as brought to fulfillment we would say in hebrews context completion brought to completion it is this consciousness as brought to fulfillment as having undergone a conversion as possessing a basis that may be broadened and deepened and heightened and enriched but not superseded as ever more ready to deliberate and evaluate and decide and act, listen carefully, with the easy freedom of those that do all good because they are in love. So is the, the gift of God's love occupies the ground and root of the fourth and highest level of man's waking consciousness. It takes over the peak of the soul, the apex anime. Now, he says there's only four levels, and the topmost level is the fourth, where the conscience is. But he does not talk there about the fifth level of consciousness because the fifth level isn't purely individual consciousness, but interpersonal. This is what R. M. Duran says about the fifth level of consciousness. Now, a lot of this is going to be new to you, but I hope to fan it out in the future. So here's Doran, that's D-O-R-A-N-R-M, Robert M. Doran, fifth level of consciousness. This from the Trinity in History, volume one, page 125, quote, the social dimensions of grace are rooted in a level of consciousness that is beyond the four levels of experience, understanding, judgment, and decision. Now, right there, he summarizes. I'll stop for a moment. Right there, Duran summarizes the first four levels on an easy way to identify them with one word. The level of experience, one. Understanding, two. Judgment, three. And decision, four. And so, again, he says... The social dimensions of grace are rooted in a level of consciousness that is beyond, we're always going beyond here, beyond the four levels of experience, understanding, judgment, and decision that sublates them. That means, of course, again, I'll stop. That means that we sublate or integrate these first four levels into a fifth level where they are united. He goes on to say this unitive, U-N-I-T-I-V-E, and inclusive level of consciousness is interpersonal. And when self-transcendent, it is marked by love in 
intimacy, in devotion to the human community, and in reception of God's love and the return of love for God in charity. The functional specialty horizons, he goes on to say, will be included or will include this dimension in its mediated object. Now, horizons is one of the theological functional specialties. But here's where I would take off on these two, from these two quotations. Once the apex of the soul is taken over by the gift of God's love, and the apex of the soul includes the conscience, then the lover of God goes beyond what Abraham Heschel calls kavanah. Remember, we studied kavanah, or kavanah, K-A-V-A-N-A-H, and he has a little section in his book called God in Search of Man, in which he says we go beyond Kavanaugh to mitzvah, M-I-T-S-V-A-H. Beyond Kavanaugh, that supreme attentiveness, we go to mitzvah, another Hebrew word. This mitzvah, in my view, signifies the fifth level of consciousness. Going beyond Kavanaugh to mitzvah, is like going beyond the four levels of consciousness to the fifth level of consciousness. I'm going to give you a hint here. The fifth level of consciousness is where the New Jerusalem enters the mind. Jeremiah 51.50, Hebrews 12.24, make that. So this going beyond, this mitzvah, signifies a fifth level of consciousness. Now, this is my take on Abraham Heschel. Abraham Heschel describes mitzvah in his book, God in Search of Man, as, quote, an act in which we go beyond the scope of our thought and intention. Do you see that? We go beyond the scope of our thought and intention. Now, this makes me think immediately of Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is alive and operational. It pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and is a critic of what? Thoughts and intents. The scope and thoughts of our thoughts and intent is transcended when it's critiqued. God always wants us to go beyond the scope of our own thoughts and intents. That's called Christian living. That's called the spiritual life. That's what I have formerly called and still do call a higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what it is. Mitzvah is exactly what it is to keep the commandments of God. John 14, 15, 15, 10. 1 Corinthians 7, 19, you'll see all this in print. 1 John 2, 3, 2, 4, 3, 22, 3, 24. 1 John 5, 3, twice. Revelation 12, 17. Revelation 14, 12. Especially the Revelation passages speak of those who keep the commandments of God. These are not people who are fundamentalists. These are people who on the fifth level of consciousness have received and act on the love of God that's poured out in their hearts. It's a livingness that I call Uranopolis, not a fundamentalist petty moralism that goes around judging and condemning everybody else. This is to go beyond the scope of our thought and intention, this mitzvah. This is why the word of God is the critic of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. It critiques our thoughts and intents, not to condemn them, but to bring us beyond the scope of our thoughts and intents and to act by faith as those heroes in Hebrews 11 acted in their own proving grounds and most of all as Jesus acted as the author and finisher of faith as he acted up to and through the ultimate ordeal of the cross, an unparalleled ordeal. We must always remember these sayings, also from Lonergan, considered in themselves, I think this is around 762 in Insight, page 762, considered in themselves faith, hope, and charity constitute an absolutely supernatural living, 
that advances towards an absolutely supernatural goal under the action of divine grace. That's the spiritual life. I'd say that's a good definition for the spiritual life. Faith, hope, and charity advancing toward an absolutely supernatural goal under the action of divine grace. And that I'll, I'll be giving the footnotes for all of these references. In connection with our major theme of seeing Jesus, and I recently gave a quote in our group text about this. In connection with our major theme of seeing Jesus, we must also understand that, quote, hope is for a vision of God that exhausts the unrestricted desire of intelligence and that charity is the transport, the ecstasy, and unbounded intimacy that result from the communication of the absolute love that is God himself and alone can respond to the vision of God. The only response to the vision of God, which is seeing Jesus, is love for him, love toward him rooted in his love for us that's perceived first and then confided in in which we are assured of, as 1 John 4, 16 says. And so, the best that a woman or a man can be has to be transcended and is transcended by faith. The best that a woman or man can be in and by ourselves has to be transcended and it is only transcended by faith. I hope you're getting these things, and I hope you look into them carefully. As Lonergan again put it, and I love the way he put this so succinctly, human perfection itself is a limit to be transcended. Human perfection itself is a limit to be transcended. The best I can be as a man apart from God obviously has to be transcended. I have to transcend the best that I am in the Adamic ontology. And Adam is capable of being a pretty nice guy, a pretty good man. And people are deceived by people that are the best they can be, humanistically speaking. Because sometimes the best you can be, humanistically speaking, can be or easily graduate to evil apart from faith. So to these things I would heartily agree and add that we are all destined, and this is extremely important because it's linked inextricably to the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. We, and I speak of we as all of humanity in all of its times, we are all destined, all of us destined to come to the unity of that absolutely supernatural faith to the measure of the stature of the maturity that is Christ Jesus, the Son of God. We only, we only transcend the best we can be in our humanity by being conformed into the humanity of the man Christ Jesus, conformed into the image of his son, God's son. So again, we are all destined to come to the unity of that absolutely supernatural faith and come to the measure of the stature of maturity that is Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who himself is that transcendence of human perfection. That's Ephesians 4.13. That's a verse that needs to be fanned out forever. This faith we're talking about, which is supernatural, works by love, which is also absolutely supernatural. What does all of this have to do with Hebrews? Again, but need I remind you that Hebrews is all about completion, and therefore it's all about the completion. Aistotelos, remember those 56 Psalms? It's all about the completion that transcends human perfection as determined by humanism. Humanistic human perfection is a limit that must be transcended. 
Those whom God uses and disposes his plan through to redeem history are people who have transcended the best they can be under humanism and under human power and under human ideologies. An evil heart of unbelief remains merely humanistic because it resists the supernatural solution and the supernatural call toward the very problem of evil, the solution of the problem of evil. It resists the divine solution to the problem of evil and instead offers solutions that are in themselves mostly greater evils. That's what's happening in our country. I speak as an American today, by and large, and by many. An evil heart of unbelief remains merely humanistic because it resists the supernatural solution to the very problem of evil which is a solution that is proffered or offered to mankind by God through the gospel of his son. Now, in the doctrine that we will be developing together, this fifth level of consciousness is, by my definition, this is how I'm taking this in my own direction, all the stuff that I've learned from others. I'm standing on the shoulders of greater scholars and greater teachers than I could ever be. But in the doctrine that we will be developing together, this fifth level of consciousness is what I call the New Jerusalem having entered the mind. Again, Jeremiah 51.50, let Jerusalem come into your mind. I am taking that and tailoring it to a series called Let the New Jerusalem Enter Your Mind, which is the interpersonal and intersubjective experience Listen carefully. In fact, I just came up with this definition this morning. This is what I call, at least for the moment, Oranopolis, O-U-R-A-N-O for heaven, and then P-O-L-I-S for city, heavenly city-state. And by definition, it is the interpersonal and intersubjective experience of an inviting heavenly citizenship as a colony on earth. Now, by inviting, I mean that like the, dis- the depiction of the New Jerusalem in Revelation, the city has 12 gates, three on each of the four sides of the city, and they are open all the time. So it's an inviting fellowship. It isn't an exclusive fellowship. It invites everybody in. But once again, I'm anticipating what I hope will be a future development of doctrine. I think, and therefore I am. No, I think that the Holy Spirit may well have been prodding me along. And I only, I I say, onset, is it really true? I have to check it out, marshal the evidence, and see some lower blade data about it. But is he directing me toward this series as the kind of piece de resistance of what he's called me to do in terms of teaching. And I know he's called me to do other things beyond teaching that have to do with faith, prayer, intercession, and various other acts of love. But that's something else. So we're we're anticipating, and I'm doing it on purpose, dropping tantalizing hints of what may be a future series called Uranopolis. But I don't know for sure because I don't know the thoughts of God that go so far beyond mine that it's not even worthy of comparison. But that would be neat, Father, that would be neat if you'd let me do that, but that's up to you. It's up to you totally. Now, the part that commands our current attentiveness is the truth that by a true heart in faith, and this again, this this comes right down to our doorstep and knocks on our door. By a true heart in faith, we draw near to the living God, and as a result, we experience... That's such an important thing on the first level, but it's also an important thing on the fourth and fifth levels. Experience still is part of the consciousness, only it's sublated. It comes into a higher form of experience. It's the experience of the life of the coming age 
right now. The Hebrew writer doesn't say, you are going to go to the New Jerusalem. He says, you have come to the heavenly New Jerusalem. You have come. Not you're going to go. Oh, you will go in fullness to it, but you have come. So here's the negative incentive. With an evil heart of unbelief, we pull away and draw back and do not experience that life of the coming age. We remain under the wrath of God, as John 3.36 puts it, but what that means is it does not mean we are going to hell. It means that we stay stuck in the moment of the evil aeon. We're stuck in the moment of the evil aeon. We retreat from the age that's come with Messiah's crucifixion, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. We withdraw from that. Of course, we're going to be stuck in the moment, as a U2 song puts it, a stuck in the moment of the evil age. And that's to perish. So, as the Lord says in Habakkuk 2.4, and we've already looked this, quoted in reverse and with emendations in Hebrews 10.38, Habakkuk 2.4 says, if he withdraws or draws back, my soul is not pleased with him, but the righteous one will live by faith. Now, Hebrews reverses that in the sense that the first clause is put last. I don't mean the truth of it is reversed. The truth of it is emphasized by putting the last first and the first last. Hebrews 10.38 says, Now my righteous one will live from faith, and if he draws back or withdraws, my soul has no pleasure in him. My soul has no pleasure in him, Habakkuk 2.4, versus... Each of us will do what pleases his own heart. Remember that from Jeremiah 16, 12? We will do what pleases our own heart. We want to stay on the first level of experience and experience that which pleases our own heart. We don't want to inquire and come to insights. We'd rather flee from insights and live in oversights of insights. You may think that we've been bogged down by staying so long in Hebrews 3, 7 to 11. Do you? Maybe you do. But see how this exhortation is held through the whole homily. This exhortation in Hebrews 3, 7 to 11, and then on into 12, morphs, as it were, into different shapes and forms throughout the homily. Withdrawing from the living God with a heart evilly affected or infected by unbelief is in essence the same as falling away or committing apostasy, or of re-crucifying the Son of God and exposing him to open shame in Hebrews 6.6. 6. Not very attractive metaphors. It's like bearing thorns and thistles rather than useful vegetation in Hebrews 6.7 in keeping with our vineyard analogy. It's like going on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. After marshalling evidence and coming to the judgment of the knowledge of the truth, then we with re recede, Hebrews 10.26. It is the same, withdrawing with an evil heart of unbelief, is the same as trampling on the Son of God, treating the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified as merely just another profane thing or common thing, insulting the spirit of grace, Hebrews 10.28, all of those are in Hebrews. And so if you think we're bogged down in 3, 7 to 11, you're wrong because that very exhortation morphs into these other further exhortations. We may have been spending a lot of time, but all of these metaphors refer to going back up, backing up into destruction. But then he encourages us all in 1039 saying, we're not that kind of people. We don't do that. We don't back up into destruction. We persevere to the saving of the soul. The, sa the soul is saved in Oranopolis, not in this evil age. So, on top of this, we have all of these shocking and repulsive descriptions equal to withdrawing from the heart of unbelief. 
And we can even do a comparison with Galatians, where Paul blasted his readers for desertion of the one who called them into the grace of Christ. That's not fluffy doctrine. We may have been spending a lot of times on Hebrews 3, but we can't rightly call it being bogged down. And if we think that the PT has spent too much time on Psalm 95, 7b to 11, or Septuagint 94, 7b to 11, we should think again, because he's going to deal with, in one way or another, with that passage all the way through Hebrews 4.11. In any event, the heart of unbelief that withdraws from the living God and deserts its post, as it were, is contrasted with the true heart in the full assurance of faith And that contrast goes all the way into Hebrews 10 and beyond into Hebrews 11 and then even to the end of the chapter. Now, John Henry Newman writes of the conscience obliquely. That is, he kind of approaches it from the oblique side, from the side. When in his book, The Grammar of Ascent, he speaks of homardiology or the study of sin within the greater subject of theology. Newman wrote this, he, that is God himself, is sanctity, truth, and love. And and three offenses against his majesty are impurity, inveracity, or untruth, and cruelty. All men are not distressed at these offenses alike, but the piercing pain and sharp remorse which one one or other inflict upon the mind till habituated to them, brings home to it the notion of what sin is and is the vivid type and representative of its intrinsic hatefulness. In other words, piercing is our conscience when we first commit acts of cruelty or injustice or inveracity or unbelief. When we're taken up short and pulled up short by God, the conscience feels the piercing of remorse and guilt, and then we can acknowledge our sin at that moment. But when we get inured to or used to that pain, just like the child that when they used to spank children, some children would just get inured to the spanking and they just take it and do nothing to them. They become used to the pain. The evil or used to the punishment. Now, when an evil heart of unbelief gets used to it, when a conscience becomes evil, it's because it gets used to the pain inflicted by guilt and remorse to the point where it no longer pays any attention to it. You watch the news today and you say, how can people act with such unmitigated cruelty, lie so constantly and endlessly without a pang of conscience and act in ways to destroy and hate other people. How do they do this? Because their conscience has been seared. That's why. And they no longer hold any of the feel. They do not hold truth to be a value, nor do they feel the piercings of the conscience, which people with healthy consciences are supposed to feel. We're not supposed to hold on to unresolved guilt because that's another kind of evil conscience. And so when people become habituated, as Newman calls it, or I would simply call it used to the piercing of pain and sharp remorse that their acts of impurity, inveracity, and cruelty inflict upon the mind, then there is a cauterization, as 1 Timothy 4.2 puts it, or a searing of the conscience so that those normal and even helpful piercing pains are no longer felt. So one can imagine the dangers of the inability to feel physical pain. That would be so dangerous. There are dangers that extend to many from one person whose conscience is seared, however. The seared conscience, the inability to feel pain in the conscience, is as bad as the inability to feel pain with the body, only this time it affects other people. When many consciences, and I'm going to close with this pretty soon, when many consciences are cauterized, then you have a movement within history, a movement that can take in sports figures, newscasters, politicians, congressmen, presidents, vice presidents. It can take in 
a whole movement of people, preachers, clergy, military people. When you have consciences cauterized, then you have a movement in history in which people make a grab for power and have no stings of conscience no matter what they do to achieve that power. They excuse and rationalize anything in order to get that power because they believe that power is the ultimate good. No matter what impurity, inveracity, or cruelty is needed to amass that power, they do it without feeling, without conscience. They can stare into a camera and lie like a rug constantly. And then when they're caught in the lie, they'll say somebody else did it. They make accusations of people of things that they're doing to take away from people viewing what they're doing, which is what they're accusing other people of doing. It's a Marxist tactic. It's a satanic tactic. It's a demonic tactic. The hardening of the heart against hearing the voice of God is where it begins. And even then, it becomes a hardening to the voice of reason. It's related to the searing of the conscience in which on the fourth level of consciousness, the, co the conscience is seared. Because the conscience is seared, and I think I need to repeat some of these things in a coming message. Because the conscience is seared or cauterized, love grows cold, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12. As self-deception increases, or iniquity, stone cold, listen carefully, stone cold self-absorption, stone cold self-absorbed narcissism replaces the warm fervency of self-forgetting love. Stone cold self-absorbed narcissism replaces the warm fervency of self-forgetting love. Perilous times come. 2 Timothy 3.1 Not because bad things happen. Perilous times come. Not because pandemics happen. Not because economic decline happens. Not even because wars happen. Perilous times come because people's consciences become seared. People become self-absorbed, cruel, and heartless while holding a facade of caring and piety in order to deceive the gullible. 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5 kind of tells that story. The conscience is often referred to as one with the heart. For example, we have evil heart in Hebrews 3.12 and evil conscience in Hebrews 10.22. And I'm going to end this today with a barrage of lower blade data so you know that what I'm saying is documented in the scriptures. We also have what is called the good or the clear or the completed conscience, Hebrews 10.1-2, Acts 23.1, Agathos conscience, and the good heart, Agathos heart, Luke 8.15. Both of these are together in the monumentally important verse, 1 Timothy 1.5, which says, the goal of instruction, meaning biblical instruction, is love from a purified heart, katharos kardias, a good conscience, sunadesis agathes, and non-hypocritical faith, pistios anupakritu. If the heart is evilly affected by unbelief, apistia, then it is inattentive, unintelligent, and unreasonable. The conscience is stultified and irresponsible, so the effect is the cooling of the fervency of love. So compare and contrast Matthew 24, 12 with 1 Timothy 1, 5 and 1 Peter 1, 22. You'll have all this in print, as you will also have, and listen, feel this with me. Feel this. Feel this barrage of lower blade data. Because of time, I have to do all these verses in the HS, HCSB, Holman Christian Standard Bible, instead of my own translation. But they're good and they're effective. Listen to this barrage and we'll close. A barrage of what I call lower blade data, documentation from the scriptures of truth. Acts 23, 1. Paul looked intently at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived 
my life before God in all good conscience until this day. Acts 24:16, Paul again speaking. I always do my best to have a clear conscience toward God and man. Romans 9, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1.12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you with God-given sincerity and purity, not by fleshly wisdom, but by God's grace. 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not give up. Instead, we have renounced shameful secret things, not walking in deceit or distorting God's message. But in God's sight, we commend ourselves to every person's conscience by an open display of the truth. 1 Timothy 1.5, again, now the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. 1 Timothy 1.19, having faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and have suffered the shipwreck of their faith. 1 Timothy 3.9, for deacons, hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 2 Timothy 1, I thank God in verse 3, whom I serve with a clear conscience as my forefathers did when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, but set apart the Messiah as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear. So that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. How about bad consciences? Documentation for it. Titus 1.15. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. 1 Timothy 1.19. We've quoted it before. This time, bad conscience quotation. Having faith and a good conscience, some have rejected these and have made shipwreck of their faith or have suffered the shipwreck of their faith. 1 Timothy 4.2, through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. How about Hebrews references specifically? Hebrews 9, the way into the holy place being closed. That's in the Old Testament, which is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are being offered which are not able to perfect or complete through cleansing the conscience of the one who offers them. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. For if the blood of he goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify, resulting in outward purity, then how much more the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God purify our innermost interior conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So note the correlation of the living God in Hebrews 9.14 and 3.12 and the contrast between apostatizing, drawing away from the living God, and drawing near to the living God in priestly service. Finally, Hebrews 10.1, for since the law has in it a shadow of the good things to come, but not the actual substance of those realities, it can never bring to completion the worshipers who continually offer the same sacrifices year after year, Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshiper once and for all purified would no longer have sins on their conscience? Heart and conscience together. How about that? Hebrews 10, 22 and 23. Let's come near with the true heart and full assurance of faith. Our hearts having been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let's hold fast the acknowledgement of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Finally, reminiscent of Ephesians 6, 19, Hebrews 13, 18, and I ask for this myself. Keep praying for us, for we are persuaded that we have a clear conscience waiting to comport ourselves honorably in everything. And Father, we do ask 
that many will in fact pray for the communicators of the word in this country, that we may act with a pure conscience, and that we may make known the mystery of the gospel as we ought to. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And now an addendum, please. I know this message is going a little longer, but I have in mind an addendum. We have been putting out prayers from time to time. I try to get most of them right from the scriptures, or at least influenced by the scriptures, and send them out in text. One of those prayers, I prayed for the efficacy of the upcoming vaccine. Now, that may have been misunderstood. By that, I was not saying you must take this vaccine, nor was I saying you mustn't. I was saying, God, grant efficacy to this vaccine for whoever takes it. Now, I think that there, you, if you're going to, I don't have the right as a pastor, one, to influence who you're going to vote for or to what you should do in a medical way. So that prayer was not to say you must do this or you must do that. If you're going to, the upcoming vaccine is a matter of your own individuality and your own individual choice. And if you recognize that you're one who needs it and should have it, and you determine that for your children by your own personal research and by your own consultation with a physician, that's not my job. And when people tell me to do what I should do in the pulpit, they start telling me what I should preach or how I should warn people. You've already gotten on the bad side of me. You're on the goat side rather than the sheep side. And so I'm not, I didn't, give that prayer again to counsel anybody with regard to the vaccine but to petition God that he would make the vaccine efficacious to the ending of this damn pandemic so I hope that's very clear the last thing I'll say is this I urge you to get to the notes of these messages because I'm doing what Psalm 12 says, the word of God is like silver, purified in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Every message I preach, if I can, is purified seven times, meaning I edit it on the back end and the front end about seven times. It goes through seven edits, and it's still rough cut, and you can find a lot of editorial mistakes when you get to it in the in, on the website, but seven edits usually accompany every one of these messages. The Word of God purified seven times. And so, again, the final format for the things I'm speaking now is ultimately the written form where I think you'll find the most benefit. That's all I have to say for today. Thank you for your attentiveness.